Tarasenko line was just out there with a couple of different running mates. Everything was kept to the board. Backstrom three on one. Backstrom feeds. Ovechkin fires. He scores! Patrick for Alex Ovechkin and goal number 50 on the campaign. And we're We sat here for like five or ten minutes trying to figure out kind of where to start, yeah, where to go, what to talk about, what not to talk about. And I got to just admit, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable talking too much about Will Smith passing away because this is, show is not about politics, so we're not going to get into guns. No, we really ride the fence on most things politically. Yeah. We, we just try not to. Well, we know we don't have the it. we don't have the answers. Sure. Then why would anyone care what we think, really? Right. And so there's that, and also I don't think we know everything about this yet. So I don't want to come out and say he did this or she did this or anything like that. So I guess all we'll say is that. I mean, I know I'm bummed. I'm I'm sorry that happened to Will Smith. And I wish it didn't. And um, Drew Brees talked about how he said something like uh, Will Smith came back last year for a game. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, Will's here. And it meant something to him. And he's like, we're going to have reunions for the Super Bowl team, 10, 20, whatever. And there'll be no Will. Right. So, I'm sorry for Drew and the Saints and Will Smith and his family. And the Saints also lost a longtime scout and color guy and radio personality. It's been a tough week to be a Saints fan. Um, so, we're bummed about that. But uh, this isn't the show, really, where we would really discuss, I guess, the things people are discussing about this. So, we're just going to leave it at that and move on. Uh, it is season six, episode twelve. Twelve already. Wow. Um, it is April fourteenth, two thousand sixteen. We have Damon Hack and Ben Ryder on the show today. Uh, Damon from Golf Channel is going to join us after three things uh, to talk about the Masters and look ahead to the rest of the golf season. Uh, the book club. We're going to update the arm. See where we stand on that. Then Ben Ryder is going to join us to talk about the Major League Baseball season that has begun. And then we're going to end this thing with uh, one last thing. So with that said, I guess let's get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Well, Danny Willett is your Masters champion. Now, have you ever heard of Danny Willett? I have not. Uh, he is... Should I have? No. No? No, I think it's the first time he's ever won on tour. He almost didn't go. His wife's due date uh, was the day of the tournament. The baby was born early. So he got to be there for the birth of the baby and then... Go to the Masters and uh, 
you know, Jordan Spieth was standing on the 12th hole uh, in command of the tournament uh, around the turn, like around nine. I think he had a nine. It was minus nine with second place at minus two. This is on Sunday. And uh, he was in command of the tournament. And then at 12, he had a quadruple bogey seven. And his lead slipped away to a three-shot deficit uh, behind Danny Willett. Uh, He birdied the next hole, Spieth, and gave himself a chance. uh, But he did not obviously pull it out. And then after being (laughs) the unique thing about the Masters is you have kind of this epic meltdown. And then you need to go into the clubhouse there and present the green jacket. Because <laughs> he had won it last, last year, year yeah. so he had to present the jacket. Wow. And then kind of an interesting thing happened, I thought. So then obviously Spieth answered a bunch of questions to people, did it fairly cordially, and then people started it on Twitter with their, Cam Newton should watch this. So then people... Got in oh, on that. Oh, okay. How to, like, gracefully... Yeah, so then, I got then people were fighting about that, you know, that... I guess people don't think you can make that comparison. I don't know why not, but... I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Uh, but either way, uh, Willett wins with a minus five. Uh, Spieth is a minus two. Westwood minus two. Uh, it looked like going into the final day, there'd be a lot of names that we know close and... Uh, Jason Day didn't have a great day. Mickelson, he missed the cut. Uh, I got any thoughts on it. You had your brother on it, and he spoke a lot about how the wind can be really tricky there. Was yeah, I think was, was that a factor? Because yeah. these are pretty un. I mean, these aren't crazy winning scores or anything like that. In no. fact, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six guys under par. So I yeah, know the course is tough, tough course. all weekend. Yeah, and uh, I know I I watched that that dreadful hole for Spieth. I mean, he hit it in the water and then he hit it in the water again and then he hit it in the sand. Hmm. So it's water, water, sand. I don't remember. Who was the guy that uh, Anthony had? He had as a little bit of a long shot, but he thought he could show all right here. Do you remember? No. Not Danny Willett, I take it? I don't think it was Willett. Uh, we did a, my, me and my brothers, we did a draft, a five golfer draft and I had drafted Willett. Did you? Yeah, so I was pleased. Honestly, I just sort of filed. I trusted Vegas. Okay. My my draft sheet was the Vegas odds, mm-hmm. and I ranked them in order of Vegas's take on them winning. And in the last round, I thought I think Willett had the best odds left <laughs> on the board, so I grabbed him. Best best player available. Yeah. So thanks to Vegas, I cleaned up on that. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk more about the Masters uh, with Damon Hack when he comes on. Uh, Jordan Spieth. He's 22. He's already won one of these and blown two of them. Mm. So by age 23, he's already had the lead on Sunday twice and not won and had the lead on Sunday once and won. Yeah, that's crazy. He's probably going to be a factor in the end of these for years to come. He's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of guys who are very good and very young, uh, Kobe Bryant plays his last NBA game tonight as we record together on Wednesday. By the time you hear this on Thursday or Friday, Kobe will be retired. Do you have any Kobe Bryant memories? What do you think of when you think of Kobe Bryant? Guy that shot a lot. A guy that uh, had a lot of friction with Shaq, it seemed like. Yeah. Uh, Kobe, tell me how my ass tastes. Yeah, right? exactly. That Shaq song. Uh, 
I don't I don't know. I don't know I, I don't follow basketball close enough. I, I know he's a popular player, obviously, but was he well liked? Do you know? Oh, I think he's a tough guy. Yeah. You know? I, I don't think he had uh Real Sports did a really good piece on him this month, I thought, and they talked about his focus and his surliness. Yeah. This farewell know? tour certainly was overshadowed by the Warriors. And the fact that the Lakers were just terrible. Well, it's interesting tonight as we go into the last his last game, he got moved to ESPN too. His yeah, last game yeah. because ESPN purchased the rights to show Golden State in Memphis tonight, which will be the final game as Golden State they win and they own the record outright. If they lose, they they've tied already it. tied the yep. Bulls. So uh, that's something we filed most of the year, and it's at its conclusion tonight. You know, Kobe Bryant's won a bunch of championships. With the Lakers. Yep. And uh, he was very good. For sure. He scored 81 in a game once. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he was one of those guys that on any given night you could find out that he had like 50 at halftime. And it was time to to find what was going to happen with that. You know, it was like just a guy that, you know, he dominated games. Seemed like he could do a little bit of everything. You know, the Hornets drafted him and traded him. We talked about really? that. We, How did I not know that? We talked about that with uh, Jonathan Abrams in his book, uh, which talks a lot about Kobe coming out of high school um, to play in the NBA right away, uh, passing over a chance to play at Duke back when he could do that. Um, and he's certainly a top 50 player. He's probably definitely a top 25 player. And then I guess past that, I'd need to know a little bit more about basketball to properly rank him, but. He's an all-time great in my lifetime. Definitely in the oh, top yeah, ten in my lifetime. Sure. Um, and I think he's, you know, obviously retiring at the last at the right time. I don't think he's got a lot left. Which is no, no, he's no not shame in declined that. statistically for the last few years. And his so. body, I think, is just broken down on him too. Sure, he's played a lot, a lot of basketball. Eighteen, something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's played a lot of basketball. So, well, it was well. It was nice knowing you, Kobe. It's interesting with a guy like that. I mean, he's still so young. You know, what is he going to do the rest of his life? <laughs> I don't know. And what will it mean to us? You know what I mean? Like, is he going to be a public figure? Are we going to know him? What's he going to do? You know, I think, like, maybe as a Buffalo guy, like, the 90s Bills mm-hmm. are the first, like, example of these yeah. athletes that we knew really well that kind of aged out in our lifetime and then had to live the rest of their life. And they've done it with kind of mixed success. Right, like Jim Kelly's been in our consciousness because of his son and his visibility in the community and his own illnesses and things like that. You know, Daryl Talley came back into our lives because Tim Graham made a great, sure, right. wrote a great piece on him and his struggles. And you know, Andre Reed has been this kind of other example of it, where he's just been living his life. I don't think we've known much about him. Same with Thurman Thomas. You know, they just kind of do their own thing, whatever it is. So, I'm really interested in the next 10, all these guys that we grew up with who aren't professional athletes anymore. You know, what do they do now? Yeah, I, th- I think it was on Corolla's podcast. He was talking to that about his son. Uh, his son is a big football fan, not a big – they don't have a team really, but uh... – so when uh, Calvin Johnson ret- – this is tough. This is the first one of these I've had to deal with because he's just kind of like stars or whatever. And uh, he's like – Corolla was saying that he went on to tell him about all the other things you're going to have to look forward to, like what the players do after their career. Because he's like, it used to be that 
like a player would just retire and you just never would hear about him again. Like you didn't know what they went on to do. Now you kind of know everything about him, and sometimes it's not so flattering, and sometimes they can be embarrassing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I'm sure he'll be in a in a booth somewhere. If the NBA playoffs are going to start uh, over the weekend. Uh, we know Cleveland will be the one seed in the East. Toronto will be the two seed. Uh, Detroit is the eight seed. That's locked up, so there's no. I mean, we're talking here. It's the last day, so you know the only playoff spot left to be decided is the eighth seed in the West will either be Houston or Utah. Mm-hmm. Both teams are forty and forty-one, and they will win the right to play Golden State. Right, right. <laughs> so I don't know how much it matters. I, you know, I don't think Golden State is hoping too hard for one over the other. I think that it's the owners hoping to get those two playoff games sure. at home and cash in on that. Golden State coming to town two times. So, yeah, it'd be interesting. I, obviously, the West feels like the stronger conference. If you finish fourth in the West, that'd be good enough for pretty much third in the East. I guess not that big of a difference, but I mean you have a 72 and a 66 win team in the West, right? And the first place team in the East has 57. So, and uh, you know, will the Clippers get Blake Griffin back, and what will he do for them? That'll be interesting. So, the NBA playoffs will uh, start soon. Speaking of playoffs, the NHL playoffs start tonight. As we record, we filled out our brackets, and uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the series a little bit. Um, nothing really came down to the last minute or anything in the NHL at all. Uh, the last day, the only thing the Rangers or the, or the Islanders would play the Penguins. Okay, right. Yeah, because Boston had been knocked out. Yeah, Boston got knocked out the day before, right. I think. So there's some interesting matchups, some hard matchups to pick in the West House. Is the one they play Minnesota. Oh, before we get into the matchups, so this is the first year where you can really hate on this format, huh? The format stinks. I mean, we I, have the I, third seed overall in the league playing the five seed overall in the league in the first round. Okay. Chicago and St. Louis are, would be the three and the five if you ranked the league from one to 16. And they play each other in round one. But what if you ranked it one to eight by conference? They definitely would not be playing each other. They'd be two and three. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't looked into that. But I, I this you, is the first year you can tell it's really a failure. The system's a failure. You know, coming down the stretch, I figured it, it wasn't a great system. But uh, you mentioned that the same teams would essentially be in. Like it wasn't the wild card necessarily that was. A yeah, failure. that's it's, not the problem. The bracket. It's the way that we're bracketing it. The right. way you're going to get things in the second round. Like you could have Pittsburgh. Or Washington is going to have to play Pittsburgh or New York in the second round, you know, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, that's in the old format would be, a, you know, a conference final matchup. Um, and, uh, you know, the central division and when we talked with um, so Shinsky was on and we talked about what he was looking ahead to. And his thing was, well, the central division because there'd be the three power teams and two of them have to play each other in round one you know and like i said the way it shook out was that the number three seed in the league st louis will play the five seed in the league chicago in round one yeah instead of nashville i'm looking at the by conference now 
Yeah. Uh, Would any of the matchups have been the same if it was in, under the old format? All right, the old format. Dallas and Minnesota would be the same, right? Right. You got Dallas, Minnesota, St. Louis, Nashville, Chicago, San Jose, and, and Anaheim, Anaheim and Los Angeles. So only one would be the same there. What about in the East? In the East, you would have had Washington, Detroit, uh, Pittsburgh, Philly, Florida, Tampa, and the Rangers and Islanders. So none of none those of would be the, the same. same. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know that that's good or bad. Well, I uh, think it's bad when you have a three or three versus five. Right, that's, and then, the, that's a problem. And then if you do it by league, so you have one to 16, you'll see that there's some bad, like 15 plays 13 or something as well. Yeah, but if you're going to get into that, you might as well just get rid of conferences even altogether. Well, I don't know if you have to get rid of conferences or even, you know, I don't even mind, like, if you do it. Like in the old system, if you won the division, you'd get the second or the third seed, no matter what. Right. And I'd rather have that small miscalculation in the seeding than what we what we had this year. And it's going to get even worse in the second and third rounds too. So, well, the second round, third round, it's only two teams left in each conference. So, the team, okay, Washington and Pittsburgh were the division winners, right? Uh, or no, Florida uh, no, won. Florida it. won the division. Okay, so. Okay. I didn't take that into account, I guess, with the standings. So Florida might be playing Philly or somebody instead in Pittsburgh. But, yeah. System sinks. Need to change it. No, I, I get why they Nobody did cares it. about bracketing. That's, That's what I was going to say. It, it hasn't. I wouldn't say so. I mean, it, it's. I filled one out. It's kind of fun to do it. But I don't know that it's any more fun than picking all this games and then picking them again two weeks from now or whatever. But The best teams should play... You know, the worst teams. In I always, round. I always love Mike Shope's idea, and they'll never do it because it, it's, it's kind of personal or whatever. But you, the top four teams, pick who they play against. Like if you're the first in your conference, you pick what team you want to play against. So that would add a little, little uh, intrigue to it. Th- that will never happen because it's too, I don't know, original, and you got to stick your neck out a little bit. And I don't think the owners would ever agree to that, but. I think yeah, it'd be fun. I like to see a one versus sixteen. Is that just kind of saying? Well, I think they would. His just idea was still by, by conference. Oh, okay, and they would pick their opponent. But one versus sixteen would be cool too. But yeah, one plays sixteen, two plays fifteen, and you reseed every round. Yep, and there'd be different matchups all the time. Were there any snubs this year? Like, it doesn't look like it. no. The teams that made the playoffs earned playoffs. Spots. I mean, Minnesota. Uh, is the worst team, and there were teams better in the East that missed the playoffs. Yeah, but I yeah, I wouldn't. That I mean, that probably happens every year, and I and I, that's you got an unbalanced schedule. You play more teams in your conference, so right. And, I noticed and Minnesota's that, conference had the three. I noticed that some teams don't even play the same amount of games like, within their division, like within other divisions. When I was doing math the other day, like one team uh, would play another division like nineteen times or twenty nine times, and one team. Well, would that's because they don't have the same amount of games or teams. Teams, in each division. right? Yeah. So, be impossible to be equal. Um, I did read that Boston would be in the playoffs if they had the three-two-one. Oh, okay. Playoff system. We've never had that. Maybe time to do it. I wouldn't mind that. I don't think the owners would go for it. I don't think the NHL would go it's for it. It's not as big of a deal, I think, with three-on-three, though. No, no, probably not. I guess I don't know the stats on that, but probably not. All right. Uh, you want to go to the matchups a little bit? I like Dallas, obviously, over Minnesota. You agree there? Yep. Uh, St. Louis and Chicago is the gem of the first round for sure. 
they played in the first round last year, and it was awesome. Chicago won in six, but there was like three overtime games. Two of them were multiple overtime games. Kane scored that sick goal in overtime where he kind of wrapped around the zone a few times and oh, right, beat yeah. Miller. Uh, I apparently took St. Louis in that. I thought I took Chicago, but I took him in seven. Yeah, so. I'm going to take Chicago, but either team could win that one for sure. Yep. Uh, Nashville and Anaheim is interesting. I picked an upset here. Went with Nashville. I don't like the fact that Anaheim doesn't have a number one goalie. Yeah, I didn't hear that. I, I like Anaheim much better as a team, so I picked them to win it. But yeah, that is a little bit. I, I wonder if they get away from that. I mean, if one guy lets in one goal in the first game, are they really going to pull him the next game? Yeah, I don't know. That'll be interesting to find out. It's too much question there. Yeah, for me, and I think that Nashville's one of the been the, one of the best teams in the league the last thirty games. Um, so I like this, I like their momentum. L.A. and San Jose is another uh, really close one, but I picked L.A. because they have Drew Doughty, and I think Drew Doughty is yeah. the best player in the world right now. Yep, and the so Kings are. I gave them the edge there again. The uh, advanced stat kind of darlings again. So in the East we have Florida and New York. Uh, I picked the Islanders here. I think Florida's a year ahead of pace. I think they're going to be kind of like the ninety nine two thousand Colts. Went twelve and four, and then lost to the Titans the week after the Music City Miracle game. Yep. You know, I think they're not ready to win a best of seven playoff series. The Islanders were in the playoffs last year. You know, they that's play a good it. argument. And I, I hate, I'm not a Roberto Luongo guy, but uh, I still went with Florida. Yeah, so I'll pick the Islanders. It's just an upset pick there. Uh, Detroit and Tampa is an interesting one because of injuries. Stamkos yeah, is out. That's a bummer. Doesn't look like Tyler Johnson's going to be able to go at least in the first game. I took Detroit in the long series, be- but because of all that, I-, I like I really like Tampa's talent. That boy, that team when uh, Steve Eiserman first got his hands on it, I thought he did all the right things. And with Stamkos, all but certain, right, he's going to walk this season. Getting nothing for yeah, him. I doubt he's now he's not going to play a game for them in the playoffs unless they go. Deep. You could never predict blood clots. No, so, I know uh, that's that's nuts. But I don't think wow. I'd hold that against Eiserman. No, I wouldn't necessarily either. But it, this was the team I thought was going to be the one of the best in the East for a long time, and they're going to be a little bit of a mess. I mean, the Jonathan Drouin thing. Like, how does that play out? I think Bishop's good enough to win him this round, though. I'll go with could. Tampa. Yep. Um, Washington and Philadelphia. I don't see Philadelphia hanging with Washington there. No, I pick Washington. I don't love Washington long-term. I don't think they're going to win the Cup, but they're going to win a few rounds. At least one, maybe two. Uh, And then I have another really good one. I'm sure NBC loves the shit out of this one. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) They should just call this the the national NBC series of New York and Pittsburgh. And uh, I'll pick Pittsburgh. I think that they... I think the second the league said, Sidney Crosby, you're not good enough for our All-Star game, we've seen a different Sidney Crosby yeah, he's since. He's maybe been the best player in the league. I think it's a guy on a mission, and I don't think he's going to lose round one, so I'll go with the Penguins there. And I could stick my foot in my mouth, but Malkin's healthy right now, right? No, he won't play. Oh, he's not going to play at all? Uh, he might play some, but not. he won't start. Oh, okay. He Boy. W- won't be out there for game one. No Malkin. At the end of Crosby and Malkin's career... There's going to be Pittsburgh fans just that are just going to be like, why couldn't they have stayed healthy together ever, yeah. ever? Yep. But they won't be there together for game one. Maybe game four or something. Yeah. Nothing's out there. I, I don't picked know. Pittsburgh, too. And I think that was one of the toughest to pick in the East. All right. Well, I'm glad it's here. Playoffs yeah, for, the best. for both leagues. we got playoffs now the rest of the spring Yep. into the summer. So we'll enjoy that. We'll talk about it a lot. Uh, but for now, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Damon Hawk, and we'll finish up. 
or Damon Hack, will finish up on the Masters and uh, look ahead to the rest of the golf season. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. We first started talking to him when he covered golf in the NFL for Sports Illustrated. Uh, for the last few years, he's been covering golf on television for the Golf Channel. And he's making his 10th appearance on the show today. A warm welcome to one of our favorites, Damon Hack. What's going on, Damon? Steven, what's going on, buddy? 10 shows. That's, uh, yes. that's pretty cool. It's appropriate. I actually have my 10th show. Uh, Winning anniversary this year and uh, ten shows with you. That's a good number. <laughs> it's just as significant in the life, I'm sure too. Ten years of an anniversary and ten years on the spot. <laughs> I mean, it's right up there. But absolutely no, one and two, buddy. You know, I was thinking like uh, I'm not Jewish, but if I was, like, I always think it's really cool how when they have the bar mitzvah, they do these like really cool things. Like you know, some of the rich people even have like bands we know play at them. And I was like, oh, maybe it'd be cool Like someone could hire Damon for their kid's bar mitzvah to write an NFL gamer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I miss, I I miss them. Like, and they're really, really fun, and they're elaborate. They're almost like weddings, actually. They're, they're very expensive. Yeah. Uh, at least some of the ones that I've been to, they're, they're quite a party. Yeah, they're amazing. And, you know, they, they tap in on these nostalgic things sometimes, you know, like things that we miss. And I miss your NFL gamers as much as I've missed Guns N' Roses the last five years, so... <laughs> you know, find something to hire you. That. <laughs> but uh, we enjoyed the golf channel nonetheless, um, and it was a crazy uh, Masters. Oh, wait, before we get to that, so you're an L.A. guy. Uh, tell me about Kobe Bryant, because we're talking today, he's playing his last game today. When you think of the Los Angeles and you think of Kobe Bryant and his career coming to end, what jumps to mind? Anything? Yeah, a few things. I mean, I, I've kind of gone through this a couple of times now, and now it's kind of showing my age. I mean, when Magic Johnson retired and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and now here we go, Kobe, you know, it seems like just yesterday, you know, the trade, the Hornets for the pick and got the Lakers, Lakers got Kobe and airballing shots in the playoffs to, yeah. you know, finally getting through with the wings and sack and, and then they're falling out and then him getting back and winning championships on his own. Just, uh, an incredible player. I, I love the tributes I've seen, the commercial where he's silencing the crowd and then ultimately, like, you know, conducting the crowd to, you know, you got Paul Pierce and Rasheed Wallace and some of his old foes uh, on the commercial. Phil Jackson makes an appearance. What a what a competitor. What a hungry player. And it's interesting. A lot of the guys on the PGA Tour, I mean, Tiger's a big Laker fan. Uh, Roy McIlroy wore gold shoes, you know, on Thursday at the Masters, and in a bit of a tribute uh, to, to Kobe. So he's he's been someone who transcends his own sport. You know, people in other games and other other endeavor endeavors really respect the work ethic and the, the focus that, that that Kobe has shown. Really, kind of almost like a, a Michael Jordan type of of player, just in terms of his singular focus uh, in, in being great. Yeah, a guy named Jonathan Abrams, a writer we really like. Uh, he was at Grantland. He just wrote a book called Boys Among Men, and it's about uh, guys who didn't go to college, went to the NBA, the good and the bad. And there's a chapter in the book about the '96 draft, you know, and the uh, you know, and it's a lot. It's about Kobe to a large degree, and and his kind of getting picked in the 
in the middle or towards the end of the lottery and then being traded. And I guess Kobe, Kobe tweeted something like, uh, 10 years ago today, when I guess maybe the 20, whatever the anniversary was, the, the Hornets drafted me and told me they had no need for me. Thank you. Something like that. Like, <laughs> I'm like, did they really say that? Like, I don't know, but I'm sure that's how, that's whatever amazing. they said, that's what he felt that, you know what I mean? And that was the beginning of this kind of ultra competitive guy, you know, like his competitiveness is maybe what we'll remember about him more than anything. It's like when I think of ultra competitive basketball players, I think of Jordan, I think of Kobe. They they just yeah. it was just a different level. I mean, they're all out there competing, obviously, but there's just a different gear for those guys. I felt like. Oh, I think you're right, and I think there's something to be said for guys like Kobe and Jordan who've been able to use flights throughout their careers. I mean, Michael Jordan used to check into hotels under the name of the guy that used to beat him beat him out for a, a spot in high school. Yeah, uh, you know, he never forgot that. Yeah. And, and Kobe, similarly, if you slighted him. And I think Tiger Woods as well. These guys have long memories, you know. And if you cross them, if you if you hurt them, embarrass them, anger them, uh, they're like elephants, man. They got a great memory; they'll yeah. never forget. Yeah, you know. I did you read uh, Ellen Shipnick's piece in SI about Tiger a couple weeks ago? I did. I sure did. I thought of that when I read that. I'm like, wow. I hope Shipnick doesn't count on ever talking to him again because I <laughs> and I he didn't do anything wrong, obviously. But just when I read it, I just thought, wow. Tiger Woods is never going to talk to SI again. I, I, I just had that like thought when I was reading it, just because you're right. There's the guys like this; they just they don't forget. And you know, NFL quarterbacks are like that too. Like, I'm a huge Saints fan. I, I listen to Drew Brees. I think I could listen to him talk about anything, and I love his pressers because he talks about the game and he'll reference plays in the game, handoffs on second down in the second quarter, plays that. A three-yard hand, he remembers that play as much as a 75-yard flea flicker to win the game or something, you know? And he can even reference a play from five years. Oh, we played this team five years ago when I first was a Saint here, and they blitzed me on second down in the first quarter five years ago. You know, like, it's just this memory that they have for the game and for the way people cover the game, and it, it it's unique to these guys, I feel like. Oh, I think you're totally right. I think I put Peyton Manning in that class of someone who could remember, you know, a certain play, uh, you know, back when he was a second year quarterback at the Colts or, yeah. or, uh, I think, I think Tiger's similar too. He remembers shots that he hit, you know, back when he was a rookie and, and you know, oh, I hit this shot, uh, you know, at the John Deere or I hit that shot, uh, you know, at San Diego. It's amazing some of these guys and the, the minds that they have, the things they remember. They're not just physically gifted, but they they have a mind that uh, that makes you shake your head and go, "How on earth do these guys remember those things?" But they're they're like supercomputers in a lot of ways. Let me ask you one, uh, ask you one last thing about Kobe, then we'll move into the Masters and we'll let you go. Uh, when you think of LA and you think of the all time athletes, and there's been a ton of great ones. I mean, whether it's the Lakers you mentioned, or Wayne Gretzky, maybe on the hockey side, or uh, the stars at USC from O.J. Simpson on up. I know they hired Lynn Swan to be the athletic director today. I think I heard to, you know, the baseball players, you know, Gibson in 88 or, I mean, whatever. Just all these guys, Fernando and Clayton Kershaw now. Uh, when you think about the greatness of Los Angeles sports, where does where does Kobe Bryant fit in there? 
I tell you what, I think he's very, very high. I, I think Magic Johnson, and I speak as an Angelino, someone who was born, yeah. raised there, was there for, you know, Fernando Media in 81, for Steve Garvey and, and Dusty Baker and Kirk Gibson in 88, Pedro Guerrero in 85, Kareem. Uh, gosh, you, you mentioned, you know, Marcus Allen. You got OJ. You had uh, Troy Aikman, UCLA. I, I think Magic Johnson in a town of stars, was and, and maybe at least for, for as long as my generation is concerned, the biggest star LA has had. I just yeah. the, the charisma, uh, the way the Lakers played basketball, how much they won, who was sitting in the crowd from Jack Nicholson to Diane Cannon to to Michael Jackson to Whoopi Goldberg, Arsenio Hall. I mean, it was a happening a Laker game, and as great as the Kobe Bryant Shaq Lakers were, uh, and as great as Kobe is. To me, Magic Johnson is probably number one, and I'd put Kobe at, at number two. So Kobe is somewhere below Magic, but ahead of like the best of the USC and Dodgers types. I think so. Yeah. I think, I he's think ahead that's of, right. uh, yeah. ahead of those, but but behind Magic. I th- I think I agree, but it's interesting to get a perspective of someone born and raised in Calif- and in Los Angeles because a lot of people aren't necessarily from Los Angeles. Um, it's an yeah, I'm from uh, yeah, from, the, from my right? soil, that yeah. is my town. All right, uh, I want to talk. Obviously, we're here with Damon Hack from the Golf Channel, so we should talk about golf. But I had to get, and just knew it would be an interesting perspective there on Kobe, so I wanted to touch on that. Uh, let's talk about this weekend because it was really interesting. You know, I remember sitting down, uh, and it was hole number nine on Sunday, and I think it was minus nine to minus two at that point. Or right around there was the lead, something like that. And my brother said something to me like, well, you know, he's still got to play 11 and 12. And of course, it was twelve. I think was the hole where he had where Spieth at the seven. We've seen Spieth now three years in a row, blow a lead, win it, and blow a lead again. What have we learned in those three years about a really young golfer like Jordan Spieth? What do we know about him now after watching these three Masters that maybe we didn't know before? Well, gosh, I, th- I think we learned a lot. I think we've learned that he has had the greatest start to a history. Uh, at, at the Masters of anyone, starting two, one, and two. I mean, he's had three remarkable weeks at Augusta National. We also learned, I think, that we probably learned this week that maybe he's not the next Tiger Woods, or at least not yet. And I think we've been, you know, rushing to find the next Tiger. Whether we were going to crown it to Rory or, or maybe Jason Day, uh, I think guys like Nicholas and, and Tiger. If you planted them on the 10th tee with a five-shot lead anywhere, they're going to bring it home. But it also yeah. speaks to the severity and difficulty of, of Augusta National. And I think your brother was on to something. The, the, the water holes there on that second nine are so devastating. Uh, and that one false move, and, and the wheels can completely come apart and come off. I, I was, though, I was on the opposite side. I was saying, you know what, five-shot lead on the 10th tee, this is over. Jordan Spieth's going to win his second green jacket and third major, and we might as well start thinking about Oakmont. That's really where my mind was, and I'm sure that's I'm not alone mind. in that. Yeah. No, that's where I was. That's where I was. I that's was right the respect with you. I have. Yeah. That's yeah. the respect I have for the, for the young man, but I just think he got out of his got out of his head just for that 10-minute stretch, and things started speeding up, and, you know, it's the talk of the game right now, what happened there. Unfortunately, there's all the 
all the great memories that we see there and moments of, of victory there. There are as many disasters that people remember, whether it's Greg Norman in 1996, uh, right. you know, or Kenny Perry just uh, 2009, uh, having a two-shot lead with two to play and going bogey-bogey. Uh, Ed Smead had a five-shot lead. Uh, you know, Greg Norman getting chipped on by Larry Mize in 87. There's so many moments that uh, are heartbreaking as much as wonderful that uh, those are, are etched in the mind of, of the golfers as well. Ben Crenshaw, two-time Masters champion, calls it the Masters' most emotional tournament that there is on the planet because everybody knows from the fans to the golfers to the caddies, everyone knows that calamity is, is possible around every step, especially on that, that back nine. Yeah, and we've seen it all week, sort of. I mean, I know Jason Day, he'd start the days off, he'd have these great front nines, he'd tail off on the back. Um, and then we've seen it, of course, with on the last day with Spieth. You know, I think a lot of those meltdowns that you talked about, I think, let me throw this at you, see what you think. I think the one difference might be is that a lot of times those meltdowns define those guys and kind of, like, especially Norman, for sure. I mean, when we think about him as a golfer, we think about that. That's what's defined him as a golfer. Whereas with Spieth, I don't think that, I think when it's all said and done, we're going to be talking about a guy who won maybe even double-digit majors, you know, something like that. Like his career is going to out-define this day, whereas so many times that day ended up defining the career. I think that's a wonderful point you make. I think the fact that he already has a green jacket is huge. Yeah. You know, Greg Norman spent his entire career chasing it, four runner-up finishes. Tom Weisskopf, four runner-up finishes. Even Roy McIlroy, and I didn't even bring up 2011 when he had a four-shot lead and shot 80. Uh, to his credit, he came back two months later in 2011 and won his first major at the U.S. Open at Congressional. Uh, you know, here we are five years later, though. He has not won a Masters. He has not won a Green Jacket. He has three-fourths of the career Grand Slam. And he's starting to talk about, gosh, you know, I've got to get past the mental block here. He's, you know, in his mid-20s. And he's already talking about, you know, I've got to find a way to, to kind of quiet the ghosts and quiet the noises and, and all the goblins and demons that are on that place and find a way uh, to, to win that career grand slam and win a green jacket. Everyone talks about how much the game sets up for him, and uh, yet he's struggling now to break through, and he didn't make a birdie on Saturday alongside Jordan Spieth. So the best thing Spieth has going for him is a couple of things. One is age, he's 22, and two is the fact that he already has a green jacket and won't have to worry about never being able to go to the champion's dinner uh, and, and chasing what, uh, what so many players have fallen short to achieve. One last thing on speech, and I want to ask you about, Willett, and we'll finish up on the field. Uh, as the day wore on, later in the day, I noticed this thing happening. So the, the tournament ends, Jordan loses, he puts the jacket on the guy, he answers some questions, and there's people on Twitter, and they're saying, well, this guy, he handled the media the way you're supposed to handle the media. And, oh, somehow then Cam Newton got dragged into it. And it was like, well, Cam Newton didn't do this in the Super Bowl. And Cam Newton needs to learn from Jordan Spieth. And I, I just I, – I don't make those leaps for some reason. And maybe I should. Maybe I should. I don't know. But it became kind of a thing. What about – what about um, what about that part of it? What did uh, what did that part of it tell you about Spieth or about golf players or 
if it told you something about Cam Newton, that's fine. Uh, maybe it didn't. It didn't necessarily for me. I didn't equate the two. But for you, when he finished it, when he that unique situation where now he's got to put the green jacket on the guy, and then he's got to answer. He's got to face the music then to the media, so to speak. At the end of it, where did you kind of fit? What, what what did it say to you? Yeah, you know, I read all the comments as well. Cam Newton honestly never really came to my yeah, mind until it was brought up, and I know Mark Flair tweeted, you know. Cam Newton yes, watched Jordan Spieth and learned. I, I just never really went there. Yeah, I did think that Jordan Spieth handled himself incredibly well and that he was going to have one of the most awkward presentations in the history of trophy presentations, right. Right. having to put the jacket on Danny Willett, not just in Butler Cabin, but also out on the putting green and have to do it two or three times You know, for the television part of the program, then for the, for the photographers. I mean, he, he, it had to be excruciating. Knowing Jordan Spieth, you, you knew he would handle it in a graceful way. It's just the way he is, the way he handled victory and defeat in the past. Um, I think it's the way you handle it. I, I think, you know, it's not about Cam Newton learning from it. I think we can all learn from it and appreciate it. And, uh, but I also understand that in the, in the heat of the moment, sometimes, you know, folks are going to react in a different way. I, I, I love the fact that he was able to keep a stiff upper lip and do this post-round interviews and, and handle it in the graceful way that he did. Uh, I just didn't I just didn't think that, maybe it's because the sports are different, the situations are different. Uh, I didn't make the leap between Cam and, and, and Jordan, but I do appreciate the way Spieth handled what had to be a very tough half hour, 45 minutes there, uh, having to go through all those obligations. Yeah, I didn't make the leap either. You know, I'm not a huge Cam Newton fan only because he kills my team. I mean, that's uh, that's <laughs> it. I mean, you know. And not only, and he's the kind of guy too. When he kills your team, it's kind of like Steve Young used to be when he killed my team. You always think you got him, but you don't got him. <laughs> and then he's, <laughs> you know, it's like he's, he's he teases you because he's right there, he's right, and then you just can't get him. But um, no, I didn't make that leap either. Uh, I just, I don't know, it's so different. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I just thought yeah. it was a different situation, yeah. and, and I think, uh, I think in this, you know, social media era that we live in you know folks are, are are just real quick to just throw stuff out there and see what sticks and uh i just you know i didn't didn't even didn't even come to my mind at all you know and i, I think what i want more than anything is for the players to just be themselves in a way like you know mm. cam newton was he wears he that's who he is he's just a very emotional guy and i don't that's that has its good and it's bad i don't hold either against him you know what i mean like he played, yeah. and I, I'd, I'd rather him just be him. I mean, I don't want him to come out all together and just cliche his way through five minutes. That doesn't make it better to me. I don't know. I think that's a great point, and I think uh, I, I like people that are genuine yeah, just, in whatever the moment is. I, just, I completely agree with you. He's just being himself. So Anyway, tell me about Danny Willett. So that's, yeah, we're here. We're 20 <laughs> minutes into this while we talked about Kobe for 10, but... I mean, let's say we're 10 minutes into this, and we haven't even mentioned the guy who, you know, won the tournament. Uh, so he, <laughs> I know he wasn't supposed to be there, but he had a daughter early, so he's able to make it. And he didn't exactly come from nowhere, but, man, he hit 67 in round four, and there wasn't a lot of low numbers out there that day, just a few. Uh, tell, me sure, about, sure. Tell, tell me about Willett and him winning and what, what you thought when, when that all went down. Well, the, no, the fact that we – Talked about, you know, speech kind of reminded me of 1996. You know, Nick Faldo won that Masters, but people still remember for 
for uh, Greg Norman blowing a six-shot lead. But, yep. you know, much to that story, you know, the of the last Englishman to win the Masters before, you know, Danny Willett. Danny Willett, uh, you know, 28-year-old from Sheffield, England, who, son of a, of a preacher and a teacher, uh, working-class roots, uh, slowly built up a very strong amateur career in Europe and England, uh, very respected on European tour circles, uh, and was slowly kind of putting together appearances in World Golf Championship events and appearing more and more in major championships. And he shot an absolutely flawless round of 67 without a bogey and, and heard the roars and heard the moans and knew that on 16, 17, and 18 that uh, Jordan Spieth had crumbled behind him that he'd have an opportunity. He had it absolutely stiff on 16, made that putt, uh, a couple of tough uh, great pars on, on 17 and 18, especially 17 getting up and down from a spot where Kenny Perry, in fact, made bogey on the way to uh, to losing that playoff to Ana Cabrera in 2009. So Danny Willett, for those in the golf world, know that he was a legitimate player, not a fluke, someone who was building a resume that would ultimately, a lot of us thought, would end in a major championship at some point. But you just never know. Uh, sometimes you go out and... You know, you find a major, and sometimes majors find you. Uh, you know, it was tapping him on the shoulder and on a leaderboard where Dustin Johnson was there and Paul Casey was there and Lee Westwood was there. And, of course, Jordan Spieth. You know, Danny Willett played the best round, answered the bell, and, and thus is a major champion. Yeah, you, you mentioned Dustin Johnson, and he still can't putt, so we know that. What else about the, what else about the field stuck out? What, what did you see? over the weekend that you are going to now project through the next three majors and the rest of the season? What caught your yeah, eye? Inter- yeah, interesting to see Lee Westwood back in the mix. He's a, a former world number one who is on that list of guys like Dustin Johnson and Sergio Garcia and Luke Donald, uh, you know, waiting to see if they have what it takes to, to win a major. He's been so close. Uh, he's had 70-some-odd starts in majors, you know, now Sergio's at 70. These guys in their late 30s and early 40s now, you know, are we going to have another Darren Clark moment who can win a major for the first time at age 41? Uh, neat to see Westwood back in the mix. Uh, he's moved back from Florida to England, had some family issues, went through a divorce, uh, admitted that it hurt his game, but it looks like his game is back in form. And Westwood, a popular guy in the locker room, uh, a Ryder Cup lion for Europe, I wonder if you can have one last hurrah. Maybe it'll come uh, at a U.S. Open or the Open Championship later on this summer. Yeah, what about McElroy? What do you think of his weekend? Because three good rounds, one bad round. Um, yeah, the, the bad round was, was really dubious because it was set up as such a great duel on that Saturday with him and Speed. We don't get those guys paired together much in majors. In fact, it was the first time they were paired together in a major on a weekend. And the fact that he just absolutely blew up and shot 77 and didn't make a single birdie was, was odd. It tells you how much he's fighting uh, to win that green jacket. But overall, big picture, um, I think he's going to win a major championship this year. I think between Baltusrol, the PGA, and Oakmont, uh, those are two golf courses that if he's driving the ball well, uh, he should be able to do uh, a lot of damage on those golf courses. He's already won a PGA. Uh, he's already won two PGAs, in fact, and he's got, he's got one uh, U.S. Open and one Open Championship. Uh, he's too talented not to win golf tournaments. I think the Masters is becoming a bit of a bugaboo for him, but I think when things settle down, uh, he'll get back to form perhaps later on in the year. 
Did you see a guy this weekend that you thought maybe previously you didn't didn't know or didn't think he'd be a guy who won a major, but now you're seeing him a little bit more in that light from this weekend or no? Yeah, Matthew Fitzpatrick, a young player from England, won the U.S. Amateur a few years ago, competed in the Walker Cup, uh, played a great final round. Yeah, 67. Uh, someone that's uh, not a big hitter, not a big man, but uh, he's actually competing in Hilton Head this week, and he's just someone looking more and more comfortable on the big stage, getting more belief in himself, getting more strength and built in his body. Uh, I think Matthew Fitzpatrick is going to make the Ryder Cup team first of all for Europe. And I think second of all, he's going to have a very fine career. Let me ask you this. Does, with the schedule this year, I think because of the Olympics, the, the gap between the third and the fourth major is much shorter than it usually is. Does that advantage anyone? Does that matter? How does, how does the gap between the majors being slightly different this year, does that affect the golfer at all? Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating that the PGA moves up to July, so the Olympics starts in, in August, and you have basically the Open Championship, and then a week off, yeah. you know, a tournament somewhere. I think it's the Travelers, and then and then the Open Championship. So oh, I'm sorry, and then the PGA, PGA Championship. Yeah. So you can have basically majors, June and U.S. Open. You have July, two majors. Uh, in the Open Championship in the PGA. And, and what I find fascinating is if you get a player like Jason Day, who last year got so hot when he won the Canadian Open and won the PGA and won two playoff events, speeds we've seen win tournaments as much as well. If you can find some player that gets very, very hot at the right time, it could be a bountiful summer for someone. Maybe it's uh, two majors and a gold medal. For somebody, that, that's what I'm looking for. That's I think it, that's the, the possible story of 2016 that I think is so delicious. That's the storyline. Who's the player that gets so hot and wins a couple of majors? We, you know, or a major and a gold medal. Uh, that person will be uh, have the inside track to uh, to win Player of the Year. I think it's going to be a fascinating summer with golf returning to the Olympics. Now, if you had to put the boys' college fund on one guy to do it, who would you put it on? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I've been a Jason Day guy okay. uh, since uh, the start of this year. I actually thought that he would win the Masters. I was surprised to see him kind of just running in place there. But because his gear, uh, off of the tee, short game putting, I think he's almost part Rory, part speech. He's just got this incredible skill set, uh, a great toolbox, as it were. All 14 clubs are, are at his disposal. I think Jason Day, who's Shown before, he could be very, very streaky. He'd be my guy to to kind of pull off the sweep in the summer and, and go ahead and win all those big tournaments. Well, Damon, you've said it all. You've said a lot here. Uh, you can find Damon. He's on Twitter. He's at Damon Hack GC. That stands for Golf Channel. Uh, you can find him on the Golf Channel. That's on your television. Tell me about Golf Channel. What's going on there, Damon? What are you up to these days on Golf Channel? Yeah, I'm doing morning drive. I'm actually this week in Hilton Head for the RBC Heritage. We'll be doing interviews uh, actually during the broadcast, which is fun. So I'm kind of still mostly doing studio work, but also getting out and getting to talk to some players and figure out some storylines and and bring some stories back into Studio AP and morning drive. But we're coming off of a, a great Masters week, and the channel itself, we had this awesome documentary, 86, on Jack yes, I loved it. Fifth green jacket, which was awesome. Yeah, but yeah things are, are great at the channel, and, and we're uh, excited for the year. And also hearing 
that uh, Tiger Woods may be getting healthier quicker than any of us originally imagined. A lot of us are starting to believe that he'll be back sometime this summer as well. So throw in the, these great young studs in their 20s with uh, Tiger Woods at 40. It could be an epic, epic summer if he can stay healthy, especially if he can get his game back, which a lot of people close to him believe that he'll do. Uh, and and if Tiger comes back, I mean, I don't know if you're writing, but I think that exclusive is out there because you know Sports Illustrated ain't getting that lead now. <laughs> You know he, it's going to be a golf <laughs> golfchannel dot com exclusive. Yeah, you know that's I ain't getting that scoop. You know he's done with them. Sorry, Alan. Yeah, I like your work. Bridge. Yeah, forget it. <laughs> All right, Damon. Exactly. Thank you so much for doing this. We love having you on. Can't wait until next time. Thanks so much, pal. All right, I want to thank Damon Hack from the Golf Channel for joining us today to talk about golf. Always love having Damon on. One of the Truly nice guys uh, we've worked with since starting the podcast. I told Anthony, I mean, Damon, he's going to be gunning for his job. He was really good at that segment. Yeah, week. we got we got a good golf team. Yeah. A really good golf team here on the Sportscasters. So. All right, book club, real quick. The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports by Jeff Passan. We waited a long time for this book. We've been talking to Jeff about it for years, literally. Uh, it was supposed to come out, then Daniel Hudson injured his arm again and it was delayed because a big part of the book you know you think well the arm and learning about the arm could be pretty benign could mm-hmm. be pretty boring but there's a human narrative in the book all along and it's Todd Coffey and Daniel Hudson and their injuries and their surgeries and their recoveries and their returns and the book is there through all of that and you get to see how this injury plays out and you know in Hudson's case he returns only to be injured almost immediately again and to have to go through the whole year long rehab again and what it does to him psychologically uh, which it's, it's crazy so there's this human element to it which I think is really the driving force of the book uh, which I really enjoyed and then of course there are chapters at times I had a battle through that are sort of doctors talking about ligaments and, you know, and that stuff is, is difficult, but it's a great, it's a, Jeff did a great book, a great job on the book. And I think, you know, I had said, I thought it could be as important as Moneyball was. Right. Yeah. And I stand by that because baseball season is early and people are going down already to these arm and elbow injuries. Uh, one of the Braves pitchers fractured his elbow on a pitch. It was awful. Ugh. It was awful to watch. Um, Has there been any, like, trend in any direction? Like, are there more controlled pitchers out there? No, right? Because people still want guys that can throw 100 miles well, that hour, was, right? Well, that's what the book is about, is what actually causes the injury. Is it... Oh, they don't know that. You know, is it curveballs? You know, because remember, you know... When we were younger, it's like, well, you can't throw curveballs until this age or whatever. Right, yeah. But no, that doesn't seem to be it. So it's not guys just throwing hard. Well, I think maybe that's kind of what Jeff concludes, that it is the it's the motion and the velocity hmm. that causes this. And it, that it just, man, it, it's tough to draw many conclusions because you have 13-year-olds who blow it out. Right. Pitched for a few years. You know, then you have a guy who's, 31 before he blows it out. Yeah, we talk about CTE forever in, in football and how 
people maybe are getting away from getting their kids to play football. Like, are people going to be like, no, don't pitch, don't be the pitcher? You know what I mean? Well, probably not, because the worst thing that happens is you have elbow surgery. Right. I mean, no, until people start dying on the time. Sure. Of well, operating. right. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Yeah. But I mean, I guess if you're saying like you could play center field or pitch, maybe you you push them to be a center fielder. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But then you know, center fielders. That's a high injury position in baseball yeah, too. Yeah. You know, diving around for five balls and if you play athletics, injuries are a risk. Sure. It's brutal though to have something like when you had a Strasburg or somebody like we always joke about that year that Washington shut him down because they'd be back or so they thought and just didn't work out. That that sucks. That's that stinks for the sport. Yeah, but we'll have Jeff on soon to talk about it. Um he's been a around promoting it so we can't wait to have jeff in also real quick i'll mention one more time i'm your savior it's a one-man show by jim florentine you can get it digital download on jimflorentine.com and uh i watched it the other day it's really good it's sweet and it's fun yeah, i've heard it's, it's pretty like poignant like which is he comes across as crass and like crank yankers and fart jokes and stuff but i've heard it's pretty good yeah it's really good it's worth five bucks for sure and you could download it on jimflorentine.com. Uh, Florentine, as the code, gets it from seven ninety five to five dollars. The discount code, um, and you can get it that way. And uh, I think you'll you'll really enjoy it. Uh, so I wanted to mention that. So the arm inside billion dollar mystery of the most valuable commodity in sports by Jeff Passan is the book club book of the month, and we'll have Jeff on soon to talk about it. Speaking of baseball, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about the baseball season with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated. All right, our next guest is from New Jersey. And is a graduate of Yale. He is a writer at Sports Illustrated where he covers baseball. And uh, his most recent story in the magazine, I believe, is about the Diamondbacks. I have it in front of me here. We'll talk to him about that. And the Major League Baseball season, he's making his eighth appearance on the show today. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? How you doing, Steve? You know, a national audience heard that fight song a little bit more than usual within the past month. Bulldogs did uh, pretty well in the tournament there. Uh, I, th- I think it got a little bit more run than usual. Well, yeah, uh, they won spring. it. They won a game in the basketball tournament. Yep. Right? They went to the NCAA hockey tournament, lost in overtime for the second straight year in the first round. And yeah. then they're also the number one team in lacrosse. It's kind of a revival in general in the athletics department at Yale over the last 10 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, pretty good spring for, for the Bulldogs, I guess. Yeah, and now this is back-to-back years, too, where they've won the Ivy League title in hockey and basketball for two straight years. Mm-hmm. They won them both. And people don't realize that that's such a huge deal to, to the campus. I don't even think, like, I was talking to my brother about it because he got a ring. They won it his last two years there, but his junior year or sophomore year when they won it, they won it two out of four. His sophomore year when they won it. They didn't get a ring specifically for it because they won the national championship. So it's, it mentioned it on the national championship ring. So I didn't even think of uh-huh. it. And then when they, when he's like, yeah, I got a ring for winning the Ivy League, I was like, really? They give you a ring for that? And he's like, yeah. Huh. He's like, that's a huge deal to like the administrators 
and to the faculty here because they, to them, they're used to not competing on a national level in sports. They're like to them, winning the Ivy League is the championship. You know, so they <laughs> yeah. they put a huge amount of stock into that. So yeah, they gave him a ring and everything yeah. for that. It's just I so thought it's such a novelty in New Haven to go uh, farther than the Ivy League as the hockey team, as recently in the basketball team did this year. Yeah, so, that's incredible. So they usually take what they can get. And the basketball team was due. You know, they were knocking on that door for a few years, and I'm glad they kind of finally busted it down. You know, it's pretty cool. So absolutely. Anyway. So, uh, oh, I want to get to this real quick because the first guest on the show today was Damon Hack. And Damon uh, is from Los Angeles. And we were talking to him a little bit about Kobe Bryant and kind of where he fits in the uh, pantheon of great Los Angeles athletes. And he provided some perspective there. And I was talking to you before because you were out in L.A. covering the Dodgers. And we recorded with Damon on Wednesday. Today's Thursday. We're recording with you. And you got to spend some time in Hollywood watching Kobe Bryant score 60 points and win the game last night. Uh, what was it like from Los Angeles as you're our Kobe Bryant uh, uh, what's the correspondent here today? <laughs> well, you know, it was unexpectedly special to be there. You know, obviously, nobody really could have imagined that he would have done what he did. <laughs> right. uh, but you know, I was there just coincidentally. I was there for a story involving the Dodgers that you know, you'll see in the magazine in a couple of weeks probably. Um, but finished up with the Dodgers and went to meet a friend at this, you know, great old Red Sox joint in West Hollywood, Dan Tana's kind of an institution there. So, you know, sitting at the bar waiting for our table and the game's on. Um, this is the fourth quarter, you know, they're down by eight or ten and you know, all of a sudden he just can't miss. And there are all these kind of like, you know, Hollywood people and like cougars and stuff, like swarming the bar, you know. Nobody can see how much time is left. Uh, so, you know, eventually by the end of it, you know, this whole restaurant seemed to be surrounding this bar, screaming with every make, and there are a lot of makes. I don't know. It was kind of one of these weirdly unexpected, unexpectedly memorable nights uh, for a lot of people, but, you know, it was especially memorable to be there in L.A. Yeah, you know, it was really cool watching last night. And a lot of people have been critical for whatever reason, I guess because you got to be critical all the time, about how many shots he took. But he <laughs> And, you know, he was cold early, but he didn't miss much in that fourth quarter. I no, mean, I mean, he shot 44%. You know, if you, yeah. if you can take 100 shots and you shoot 44%, you know, it's not terrible. Um, you know, I don't think that last night was a day to develop, uh, you know, Julius Randle or D'Angelo <laughs> right. right. Russell. You know, I, yeah. I think... That you know, if you put the over under on, on forty shots last night, you would have probably taken the over, and, and it certainly hit that. Yep, and then in the ultimate Kobe Bryant irony, he's his last recorded stat in the NBA is an assist. <laughs> of course, of course, that's only fitting. Uh, I mean, who was it? I think it was Russell, right? It was Clarkson, I guess. Yeah, for the dunk, I mean, he caught it, and he stood there a second. He seemed dumbfounded. It. it seemed like Clarkson had no idea what was happening. Yeah, he didn't know what so to he do. He passed him the ball there. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's cool. It's really cool. It's got to be cool to, to experience a little bit better atmosphere than uh, my living room last night for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's transition to baseball, because that's why I called you, and we're looking forward. You know, the season, we're about eh, eight games in or so, nine games in. Everyone's around that that level into the season. Two or three series. Most teams have played a home game, played a road game. Actually, I think everyone at this point has done that. Uh, yep, everyone's uh, played at least one of each. Um, what jumps out 
just generally speaking, a real general question to start. Uh, what has caught your attention so far? Um, well, as far as surprises, really, I'm shocked by the Twins. You know, it's not like people thought that they would necessarily uh, be a serious contender, but this is a team that showed a lot of promise last year under Paul Molitor. Uh, you know, expected another step forward for Miguel Sano. They have like three or four of the leading rookie of the year candidates there. And just to start the season 0-9, you know, it's still early. Baseball season's so long. And, you know, after the first series or two, whenever I'd be talking to people, you know, kind of remind them, like, hey, we're the equivalent of, like, one quarter or one half of one game into the NFL season. Like, that's how early it is. But 0-9, like, that's bad. That, that's, a, that's already kind of a hole for a team that had some designs on a wild card, rightly so. Uh, just very, very surprising. You, you look at this offense, Steve. They got three guys who are hitting above a buck seventy on the whole team. So you want to know what's wrong with the Twins? You can start there. Inexplicable, but there we go. Right? Yeah. And uh, we expected this out of the Braves, maybe, but not the like you said, not the Twins, as the Braves right. and the Twins are the only teams without a win as we talk so far. Uh, are the Cubs above your expectations, equal to your expectations, or where do they stand so far? I got to say above a little bit. I think a little bit above. You know, I was a guy who, I'm not a Cubs skeptic. You know, I picked them to win the division. You know, I have not picked them to win the World Series just because I think it's so hard, even when you get to the playoffs as the number one seed, to navigate that postseason schedule so hard. You know, even the bookies in Vegas are only giving them a 33% chance to win the World Series at this point. But, man, this team's looked every bit of its reputation so far. We knew the offense would be good. Um, this just looks like a team that is going to destroy kind of mediocre to bad pitching. You know, every team does well against it, but this lineup's just going like, to house bad pitching. Um, but I'm kind of impressed by, by the Cubs' own pitching. I thought if they had any uh, you know, kind of question questionable spot it might be their pitching staff uh after arietta you know it hasn't been questionable at all you know, i guess lackey has gotten off to a slow start but everybody else has been even better than expected and you know no no signs of trouble there in chicago even with the loss of kyle schwarber which you know is a bit sad but i don't think will affect them so much just because they're so deep right are the orioles and white Sox examples of teams we see every year that get hot in April, maybe even extended to May, uh, but then we find out in June, July that they had a week schedule early, maybe, or they just caught fire. Or are these two teams that you expect to stick around as the year uh, goes in? Uh, well, you know the the White Sox, I guess, are probably a bit of fool gold. That's fine. I do think they're improved from last year, especially after they got rid of that clubhouse cancer, Drake LaRoche, right? right. Maybe that's yeah. a secret. That was. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that, uh, if Adam LaRoche happens to be listening. Um, but, <laughs> big no, problem. I mean, I think that if you look at the White Sox schedule so far, they really played, you know, seven Twins, games so yeah. far against the Twins and the A's right. have helped. You know, they, they've lost one of those seven, so I, I think that that has a lot to do with it. The Orioles are something of a more interesting team to me. Uh, you know, they, they have tons and tons of power and I think we're seeing that uh, but I think that the pitching is what would have been surprising me so far you know they've only allowed 26 
runs so far, which is tied for third fewest in the league. This is a team that looks like it has one of the worst pitching staffs in baseball. You, know, you figure that they'll be winning a lot of 10-8 to eight games. Um, hasn't been that way so far. I think the staff will come back to earth eventually. You know, I don't think Ubaldo Jimenez has actually you know, found anything. I don't really love the Giovanni Gallardo signing. Perhaps Kevin Gaston can come back and give them a lift. But uh, I think that this will will revert to one of those high-scoring teams that gives up a lot of runs soon. And, you know, they're certainly not going to be this hot forever. Right. Uh, We're talking with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated. You wrote in the magazine a few weeks ago, um, the Supernova issue, uh, about uh, the Diamondbacks. And I thought it was pretty interesting because you talked a bit about how uh, the Diamondbacks added a lot of players and that they maybe didn't follow the the money ball type of system, sabermetrics, the way so much of baseball has, and that they were really going to be an example of a team that was maybe going against the trend and we'd get a chance to see uh, where that stands. But And I want you to talk about them, but haven't we kind of seen that to some degree in the Royals as well? Maybe not as much as how the team is put together, but certainly how they're managed with all the bunting and running and things like that. Um, first, just where do we stand overall in the league in terms of teams embracing an advanced stats type of style compared to not? And then you can get into the Diamondbacks and what you found out about them and their philosophies. Right. Well, I, I do think that the Royals comparison is an apt one, Steve. Uh, and their team that kind of came up a lot as I was reporting this story, there's a reason why every year the projection systems expect the Royals to be bad recently, right? I mean, mm-hmm. analytically, their statistical markers don't seem to add up to a winning team. And yet, year after year, they far exceed those projections um, and, you know, perhaps seem like they're on the way to doing so again this year when they were picked last in the AL Central. Um, and, you know, and here they are at uh, 6-2. and two. Now, is it, what is the secret here? What are they doing now, the idea is that perhaps there is some sort of team chemistry. You know, these are people involved. Perhaps there is some sort of team chemistry, team dynamic, that can allow players to consistently play above their statistical projections. You know, the, the statistically normal uh, level of play that you think that they should turn in. Now, I think that this is a big idea um, of what the Diamondbacks are going for because they believe that they have two very special players, which they do, Paul Goldschmidt and A.J. Pollock. Now, since the article came out, um, and actually since they made this kind of big splash this offseason, A.J. Pollock has gone out with a fractured elbow for what looks like the whole year. So this year uh, you know, might not turn out as well as they had hoped. But the reason that they are kind of going for it by signing Zach Greinke and trading for Shelby Miller, that they felt that they had these two incredibly strong and sturdy bases of a clubhouse and a team that won't just kind of play well, but that could have this dynamic that might elevate them into a champion as the Royals have. Yeah, and, and you know, the Royals, we couldn't find anyone last year, uh, early in the year, that thought they would make the playoffs again, you know, or... <laughs> Certainly not win the World Series like they did, you know. Right. But it just seems like it just seems like that as the game that they they shorten the game. That's for one. The you know obviously they have a good bullpen, and also that 
the things that advanced stats people have said don't exist over and over again seem to creep in. Like things like, I don't want to say clutch hitting, but you know that they found a way all the time in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning. They're down by a run. That's when they're getting runs. And I don't know. I'm not smart enough about advanced stats and not advanced stats to know uh, when we're finding something that's an anomaly and when we're just seeing something that's real. Right. Um, and you know, it's a very hard dynamic to capture. The Royals, I think, demonstrably have. Uh, and, you know, the, look at the guys who are in charge of this Diamondbacks overhaul, particularly Tony Larusa. This is a guy who's been in clubhouses for 30-plus years. You know, is he just like an old guy telling stories about the past who has no idea what he's doing? Or does he have some kind of extra sense uh, for what leads to winning baseball? Um, that perhaps numbers can't entirely explain. That's what this season and the next several years will show. You know, you'll, the, the Granky signing, okay, it's just money. You know, I mean, they have a big new TV contract of right. $206.5 million. Okay, the Miller one was the controversial one. There's a 25-year-old guy who's had some success, like a 3-2 ERA over his first years. But, you know, they're trading essentially three years of Shelby Miller for 16 controllable contract years of three highly regarded players who are younger in Ender and Ciarte, pitching prospect Aaron Blair, and Danzy Swanson, who was the number one number overall one, yeah. pick in the draft mm-hmm. just last year. Now, that's a controversial trade, right? They'll say we needed pitching. We need a number two solid behind Cranky. This is our guy. We have other guys in the minor leagues to, you know, Fill in the gaps based on the guys that we just traded, but we did not have another Shelby Miller, so that's why we did it. Doesn't seem to add up analytically. Certainly hasn't added up so far based on Shelby Miller's first two starts. Uh, but you know, there's a ways to go before we can make a determination on this trade. Yeah, and you know, I was reading. You know, Jeff Passan was the first ever guest on this show, uh, and he comes on often. And I was reading his book, The Arm, and one thing I took away from that is that nobody, there's no analytic for when a pitching arm is going to be done for 12 months. There's just nothing there. I just, I read that book and I know Jeff worked really hard on it and researched it hard. And I don't think there's anyone who can claim what they're doing is better than what anyone else is doing to protect these arms. You know, so, so whenever I see a team trade pitchers who are still three or four years away from the big leagues, two years away from the big leagues, I think, you know what? Why not? Because there's just no guarantee that that guy is not going to blow out between now and then. So yeah, what? I mean, so what are we analyzing? Look at it the other way, though, you know, like you're that trading you all these valuable guys for a pitcher, Shelby Miller, who could whose blow arm up. could blow right. up tomorrow. Uh huh. Yeah, no, you know, that's especially true. a guy like I mean, I think the the player in the deal that really uh, kind of pissed people off from <laughs> pissed observers off was Inciarte. You know, here's a young contact hitting defensively excellent center fielder who had a war of like over five last year whereas Miller's was like three and a half. So, you know, last year he was better than Miller in some regard by himself. But you know what? I mean the again the Diamondback said we have guys in the system like Socrates Brito who's come in and taken most of the best for Pollock. We have defensively gifted center fielders, um, you know, who might not be that much worse, if not worse at all, than and Darren Ciarte. What we don't have is kind of an established number two. That's why they did it. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. It's going to be really interesting to follow, follow them and also to follow the league and to see 
Uh, are they uh, an outlier, or are more teams going to take these kinds of risks against the analytics? Or, I mean, I would guess not. I, w- I would think that yeah. it, it would always be that that this is from now on this will be an outlier thing. But we'll see. Uh, well, well, I mean, one more thing. I yeah. it was also market driven. You know, I mean, the the cost of pitching, of quality pitching, right now is just so high, as we saw in the free agent market. Uh, you know, but also even in some of the other trades that were made. You know, and closers like Craig Kimbrell and Ken Giles are bringing back four and five prospects. Um, you know, and when the Diamondbacks kind of asked every team in the league who had a young, good starter, and, you know, the, the teams wanted A.J. Pollock and Patrick Corbin, like the price was just so high that to them this was kind of like the best they could do, even if in some measures it, it didn't make sense. Right. And, you know, when you, the year after you sign that big, you know, regional television contract is a year where maybe you can take a risk, where another team who's maybe a little bit more cash-strapped, uh, small market or whatever, has to be a little bit more careful, kind of. I think you right. are making that point as well. Uh, the Sportscast is here with Ben Ryder. You can find him on uh, Twitter. He's at SI underscore uh, Ben Ryder. We're just kind of bouncing around, looking at the Major League Baseball uh, season. We're about nine games in. Uh I heard someone say, I can't remember who, that the only story uh, that's important to them this year is the Cubs. What are the Cubs going to do? And we talked about the Cubs. Uh, but I thought that that can't be true. This is a league of many stories. Uh, so what are some other season-long stories that you are interested in following this year uh, besides the Cubs or maybe some other things that we've already touched on? Well, you know, one story that I'm interested in, and they're playing well recently, but... Um I still expect the Los Angeles Angels to be perhaps the worst team in the AL. Now, the Twins have put themselves in the hole and a few others. But this is a team that uh, is very concerning for a team that's been competitive for a long time. Yes, they have Mike Trout, uh, but they don't really have much else. They don't have any depth. You know, Albert Pujols, you're putting a whole lot on a guy who's aging, has been banged up recently, a whole lot of importance. And they also have what some observers have called the worst farm system right now uh, in recent memory. They don't have any player on any of the top 100 prospects list. They don't really have any who are close. Uh, you know, they're 5-4 and four now. You know, that's a, a sweep of the A's helped a lot. It seems like a lot of teams are beating up on the A's uh, recently, <laughs> at least the ones that we've discussed uh, in this podcast so far. But, you know, I'm very interested in what the Angels are going to do moving forward because they don't have that many tradable assets either. You look at Garrett Richards and Cole Calhoun, you know, if they want to start rebuilding the system and things don't go well this year. But, you know, then you start wondering what's going to happen with Mike Trout, right? Like, he's, you can't trade Mike Trout. He's, why would you trade the best player in the world? doesn't make any sense. You know, what are you doing this for if we're not going to keep this guy? But you start to wonder at some point, will things get so bad for the Angels? that they'll be left with no other choice. And, you know, I think that this season might be the beginning of that process. And that's not a patient owner either. No, he's yeah. not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they didn't, didn't do much. I mean, they're five and four. They got off to a five and four start. Like, they're not, obviously not horrible yet, but I think things could get there. You know, when you have Jared Weaver throwing, like, 78-mile-an-hour fastballs, and I, I, I just don't see this thing going well there in Anaheim. It is an even year. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Giants this year? I saw the Giants uh, the other night in person. Um, 
I think they're great. I think they're they're really they they have that look again. You know, they're off to a six and three start as of this taping. You know, Jeff Samarja, I think was a good signing, a good start against the Rockies the other night. Uh, I think he'll benefit significantly going forward from playing in a bigger ballpark with a much better defense than he had last year than the Whites with the White Sox. You know, I, I think Brandon Crawford has quietly developed into a really great kind of all-star caliber shortstop, yeah. supporting Posey and Pence and Belt. You know, this is just a really well-run team. I think it's just coincidence, obviously, that they seem to do it every other year. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're my pick to win the NL West, and I see no reason so far to change that. Are you panicking about the Mets at all? It seems like they can't hit again. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not panicking about them. I mean, they had a few few rough games. You know, I, the, the concern I've had about the Mets all along is the Nationals, really. You know, I think that the Nationals could be kind of a post-hype contender. In fact, uh, on SI.com's expert prediction page, I picked them to, you know, lose the division to the Mets, but to win the first wild card in the NL, and then to go on from there to win the World Series. My theory being, my theory being that by then they'd be bolstered by their top prospects, Trey Turner and Lee Lucas Giolito for an October run. But, no, not concerned at all about the Mets. Um, you know, questioning a little bit, as I think a lot of people in New York are, some of Terry Collins' moves to this point. I think he has to figure out, uh, you know, how to get Michael Conforto's bat in the lineup more. Um, I think he needs to have him. He can't be hitting Juan Lagares, uh against right-handed pitchers and leaving Michael Conforto on the bench. That's for sure. But this team is just too talented. Uh, they'll be fine. Do you think we could be seeing one of the all-time bad teams in the Braves? Yeah, yeah, sure. They could lose 100. <laughs> and... There's no question about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, what do the Braves have? I have you know, no it's idea. Easy, it, <laughs> it, it, it's easier for this team uh, to, instead of discussing what they're missing, than to just point to what they have. What they have isn't much. You know, they've hit three home runs so far. They have no power. They have an outfielder who's now been praised in Hector Oliveira, who's now been placed on an administrative leave uh, for domestic violence. Yeah. You know, what they have, their starters are terrible. Yeah, this team's terrible. It's designed to be terrible, though. The team that could, you know, I think that their rebuilding stage could be pretty fast because you look at this, the minors, they have like 10 top pitching prospects coming. Um, you know, the old axiom being you need like, 15 to 20 pitching prospects to get two or three actual hits. Well, they're getting close to that number. Uh, so I think that their rebuilding stage could be short, shorter than maybe like the Astros or Cubs were recently, but you know, it's going to get pretty bad and this year it's going to be terrible. Right. And it was kind of designed to be bad now and good when the new stadium opens was kind of the plan, right? I mean, they kind of are, exactly. have done this with yeah, foresight. A, yeah. Yeah, this could be. I mean, the Braves, you know, it seems like the Braves have been good forever, but they went through some lean years about, uh, you know, 33 decades ago or something. Right. You know, this, this could be worse than any of this. Yeah, yikes. I like the, you know, what do they have? And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, I kind of like Matt Weisler a little bit, I guess. I mean, I like Freddie Freeman. I think he's a great player, but, you know, he's got two hits this year, so even he's not doing anything. Right. He's the only power they have. 
Yeah. But yeah, that will be bad for sure. All right, we're finishing up here. The Sportscasters with Ben Ryder is nice enough to spend some time. Again, you can find him. He's at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. On Twitter, I mentioned his uh, latest uh, work in the magazine was his piece on the Diamondbacks. We talked about that a little bit. Um, and he teased us a little bit earlier in the podcast about what could be uh, coming soon. Uh, did you read the the arm? I, I, I'm halfway through it, and I've read all the excerpts. I think it's uh, obviously brilliant work by, by Jeff Passman. I love the way that he mixes, um, you know, kind of more analytical stuff with these great personal stories uh, of Daniel Hudson and, and Todd Coffey, who have actually gone through this thing twice. Yeah, I just I wonder. I, I was I was thinking like, man, I, I think that this could be a really important book in baseball. Uh, maybe not to the level Moneyball was, but something like that. Just like a book where we look at that really represents the era and what baseball was going through, and maybe the first guy who really tried to make sense of it. So yeah, I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what other baseball yeah. people think of it too. Yeah, I mean, man, you know, I, I really felt for Daniel Hudson in particular. You know, like when. The guy turned down a $15 million contract extension oh, from I the Diamondbacks, yeah. right? Um, and then he blows out his arm. He just can't help but keep thinking about that thing. You know, it kind of makes you think, like, oh, you, these guys are so wealthy, and I don't have to worry about money. But can you imagine turning something like that down and then not having it come back? You oh. know, it's kind of like Ian Desmond must be thinking about this every single day. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you can probably feel for these guys, even though they're obviously doing financially fine. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention? Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> any questions for you? Uh, let me see here. I don't think so. Yeah, I wouldn't I think, think so. We covered, a, <laughs> covered a lot of bases here. <laughs> All right, Ben. It's good catching up. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Ben. Looking forward to it. All right, I want to thank Ben Ryder and, of course, David Hack for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this week's podcast and last week's with Jonathan Abrams and our new golf analyst, Anthony Day, <laughs> on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, and you can find us on uh, Podbean and Downcast and all those things. Uh, if you use something and you can't find us, let us know. We'll help you set it up, or we'll write whatever wrong there may be. You can email us anytime, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters or at downlink sports. All right, one last thing for me this week. It's going to be, I think, similar to yours, but uh, I started reading articles about Pearl Jam's tour. and Strong start. Glowing articles. Yeah, strong yeah. start, yeah. Uh, Anyone that's new to the podcast may not know, but we are huge Pearl Jam fans, and uh, we go to multiple shows on the tour. You more than me, but uh, man, anytime I tell someone it's like just maybe a casual music fan, it just kind of listens to the radio. Like, oh, I'm going to two shows in a row or three shows in a week or whatever. They're like, why do you do it? And you just read these set lists. They're different every night. Uh, the fan experience is awesome. There's they're super good to their fans and. I, I think I kind of like get on like a Pearl Jam vacation where I don't really think about them. And then all of a sudden the tour creeps up and I can't, I'm super psyched to go hopefully three times yeah. in the next couple months. Yeah, for sure. Uh, to piggyback on that one last thing, not as much Pearl Jam, but 
Periscope is changing the game when it comes to concerts. Yeah. Uh, I have watched pretty much the whole tour so far. I mean, uh, the Saturday show, I was watching the national championship game between North Dakota and Quinnipiac. Uh, so I didn't watch the whole show that night, although I did catch up on a lot of what I missed. So here's the deal. So Periscope is an app that is basically a live video stream in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And it connects. To, you can connect to it with Twitter. Um, and so here's what I do. It's 7.45 the night of a show, or 8, 8.30. They're going to go out at 8.45. There's a map of the world. Another night they were in Tampa. So you double click on the US. The US gets bigger. Then you double click on Florida. Okay. Florida gets Zooms bigger. In, yeah. Then you double click on Tampa. Tampa gets bigger. And then you look around for the arena in Tampa. And I knew that their arena was by the water. So I looked by the water and there was the arena. You double click on that. And then it tells you there's red bubble means it's a live stream. A blue bubble means it's a stream that ended from there. And you can watch and look at. You can watch the ones that ended too? Like, yeah, for 24 hours. Okay, if, cool. If the user set them to be replayable. Okay. Like when we did ours here, we allowed it to be replayed for the next 24 hours. Okay. Some people will not allow that. So it's a hit or miss on if you can review them. And they do only last for 24 hours. But um, no, you probably won't be able to just click on one and watch the whole concert that way. People, it's, you're, you're at the the... The will of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, their batteries die. Uh, they get tired. They don't want to do it. Right. But you're you're already zoomed into the arena. So when one ends, you just close it and open the next one. Sure. And I've noticed that the people periscoping have a really hard time giving up their audience. When suddenly 400 people are watching them <laughs> and harding them and commenting to yeah, them, yeah. they have a hard time giving that up. Yeah, I and you'll have feeds that will go for the first night of the tour. We were watching a girl's feed, and she, in between the first set and the encore, went into the bathroom and was charging her phone and was crying because she didn't want to shut it off. Really? Yeah, that was going to be my question to you. Like on YouTube or something like that, you'd be able to see those thumbs up and likes, and but that video is uploaded and stays there. Yeah, kind of check on that. The feeds, are, the and, feeds are hit or miss. You it's know, weird. sometimes you watch one and they're too close to the speakers and it doesn't sound very oh, okay. good. You know, sometimes they're too far away, so you can't see very good. Sometimes they have older equipment. So but what do you think compels someone to do it? I don't know. Well, you got to remember in an audience of 20,000 people. Yeah. Not everyone is as diehard as you. Sure. Right. Right. Um, and sometimes it's girlfriends or wives of the, the fan. And they would just assume entertain 400 people on the internet. Yeah, okay. That's and enjoy true. the concert that way. Right. Uh, because, and also, we've adapted to always being on our phones. Yep. And not everyone views being on your phone as being an exclusive experience. Right. Many people are comfortable multitasking with their phone as if it was a second screen experience. Well, all. they do that with uh, The Walking Dead. They, like, they call it like a story sync or something. And like many that. people have grown up with that now, yeah. gotten used to that. I am super like into tech stuff, but some of this stuff just I think I just if you're not ten years younger than me, you don't get some of it. I wouldn't want to broadcast the whole Pearl Jam show on Periscope. 
No, but I'm glad other people do. Yeah, sure. I'm a guy that'll take pictures at a show or even record a song or something like that for later on. But I, I've always argued against the people who are like, "Oh, that footage is shitty. Why do you do that? You're never going to look at that." Because, so I never, never begrudge someone taking their phone out, taking some pictures, doing a song, whatever they want to do. Because, you know, one tour ago. Periscope wasn't a thing yet. Right. So it wasn't like you could just watch the shows on Periscope. But it was nice the next day if they played Oceans for the first time in a year to be able to watch a video on YouTube of that Oceans. Right. No, it might not be the best footage, but I might want to check that out one time instead of waiting six months for the bootleg. So I've never had a problem with this. And now with Periscope, we don't get to go to a show till the middle of May. You know, they're touring down south or whatever. Yep. So we get to get a feel for this. And by the way, on Friday, on Friday night, so Pearl Jam has their second show of the tour, I believe. Maybe it was the first. First or second show. Second show of the tour. So that started around 8. I watched most of that. Then I was just kind of killing some time. I watched David Gilmore play a couple songs at the United Center in Chicago. <laughs> I uh, watched him play Comfortably Numb and a couple other songs. Uh, then I found a club, a Rob Zombie club show. I watched a little bit of that. I'm uh, not a big Rob Zombie fan, but it's just cool watching yeah. a Periscope concert from a club. It was just getting that, see what a club show would be like. How did you figure that out? Like, uh, Well, those, so on Apple TV, there's an app store now. Right. And Periscope has an app in the app store. It's not as good as the phone app because you can't search. Uh, but it does have a global trending videos. Okay. okay. So I was just scrolling through, and usually the concerts have a high number, so they end up on the global trending. So I was watching, just kind of scanning through that and finding the different shows. And then Guns N' Roses had their first concert in 23 years. Right. And I watched uh, the whole thing. It was awesome. Yeah, so good. Kind of amazing. Yeah. It was so good. And the Guns N' Roses is a whole separate conversation, but... If you were on the fence, if you didn't think Axel could sing the songs anymore, if you thought it was just a money grab that they're not into it, they still hate each other. Yeah. If you had any of those concerns, I can promise you that they're they're unfounded. They were fire. They were. They looked good. What was the first good. show? The show the Troubadour or whatever. They played the Troubadour. That looked awesome. That was you know more of a warm up show. Right. Yep. Limited amount of people. Axel actually broke his foot on the second song, and no sold it. Toughed it out. So this weekend, the first two shows in Vegas, he was sitting on Dave Grohl's throne. I saw that. You know, so he had to borrow that because he had the broken foot. But it was maybe a blessing in disguise because he just sat there and concentrated on singing. He wasn't running all over the place like a maniac and blowing himself up. <laughs> right. uh, so they were great shows. And um, the set list was really good. You know, they played Coma, which is a song that as a band, I think they only played five times ever, including New Guns N' Roses, Never Touched It. Huh. So they played that from Usual Loser 1. They played Estranged both nights. They played uh, uh, what else was cool? I mean, all the hits, really, you could think of. Um, they played a few songs from Chinese Democracy, which sounded great with Slash playing the solos and stuff. And the band is really good. I think people were disappointed that Steven Adler wasn't in it. But, I mean, Steven Adler is not half the drummer that the current guy is. You know, so, I mean, him and Duff handling the backbone of the band. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, it's great. It's worth checking out for sure. Uh, they're going to do an arena tour. But if you're sitting at home sometime this week 
and somewhere in the country or in the world there's a concert that you want to see, go to Periscope. Get on that get on that map and you might just be able to find a live stream of it. 